Time now for the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Hi everybody, Tanner Hoops with you. Glad that you're with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Hope your work week is going well. And hey look, we're almost halfway through. The week's flying by just like that. Uh, Big news yesterday for all you Brewers fans as you got to see your team win their second division title in franchise history. First postseason appearance since 2011, last time the Brewers won the division. Chances are you were popping a little champagne of your own while you saw the guys in blue take down the Cubs at Wrigley. It's got to be an awesome feeling. Swing and a fly ball right field. Broxton ranging over into the alley, calls for it, and makes the catch. The Milwaukee Brewers win the one-game tiebreak for the NL Central. 3-1 to one, the final score at Wrigley Field as they hug and celebrate in front of home plate in their navy blue. That was ESPN's Jason Benetti on the call yesterday for ESPN Radio. Let's relive that again. Such a special moment. Let's live it again. Swing and a fly ball right field. Broxton ranging over into the alley, calls for it, and makes the catch. The Milwaukee Brewers win the one-game tiebreak for the NL Central. 3-1 to one, the final score at Wrigley Field as they hug and celebrate in front of home plate in their navy blue. Congratulations to the Milwaukee Brewers, all their fans, a very well-deserved divisional title. A team that, with 30 games left in the regular season, sat just 14 above 500 at 73-59. and 59. They were in fourth place in the division at the time, four and a half behind the Cubs for the lead. And they went 22-8 and eight down the stretch in the final 30 games of the regular season to tie for the NL Central lead and end up beating the Cubs in game 163. All told, they have won each of their last eight games to get to this point. They had to be perfect, and they were. Give Craig Council a ton of credit. He's a guy that he's been in a situation like this. He's won two World Series rings as a player. He's been in situations like this, and he brings that stability, that guidance with him to Milwaukee as a manager. We keep going back to who deserves to be manager of the year. Craig Council is going to be a finalist. Brian Snitker will be a finalist. Bud Black should probably be considered to be a finalist. In my mind, those are the three guys that sit atop right now. But Craig Council certainly moved himself off the bubble yesterday. Uh, We knew he was going to beat one of the three guys that was up for it. But now he's a guy that is realistically going to win the award. He had high praise for Christian Yelich, who looks like he'll be taking home some postseason hardware of his own. A guy who was a National League MVP candidate. We can safely say that he is now the favorite to win it. And his manager believes that he is a big reason why this Brewer team was able to turn the season around. Take a listen. At some point, we just decided what our kind of mission was. And and Kristen Yelich had a lot to do with that, really. There was a night in Cincinnati that we we had a crazy game. He went six for six, hit for the cycle. And... um, you know, it was the night to me that kind of the vibe changed, and, and it was he, he shared some words with us after the game that I thought was really impactful, and um, to me it was the, the night the season changed. Well, it was Yelich who got the scoring going yesterday. A third-inning single to center scored Orlando Arce and gave Milwaukee a one nothing lead. 1-1 pitch, hit hard into center, base hit. Yelich is 2-2. Two two. He scores Arcea. And the Brewers have the first lead in this one-game tiebreak, one to nothing. Chicago's offense was limited to just three hits throughout the day. However, one of them was a game-tying solo home run off the bat of Anthony Rizzo. 0-1. 
Swinging a fly ball, well hit, deep right field. Yelich has no play. He just looks up. It is way up the bleachers. And a game-tying home run for Anthony Rizzo to right field. We're even at one. Oh, my goodness, was that crushed. Chicago's best offensive chance in the game came in the bottom of the sixth when Javier Baez came to the plate with two on and two out, but Joaquin Soria had other ideas. Three balls, two strikes. Two on, two out, one-one tie. Soria delivers. Runners go. Swing and a miss. Strike three. A fastball near the shoulders, and Baez goes down. Two stranded for the Cubs in the sixth inning. From there, the Milwaukee bullpen settled in. Corey Knable, Josh Hader, and company aided by a pair of eighth-ending RBI singles by Lorenzo Kane and Ryan Braun. Three and two, infield in, second and third, the pitch. Swing and a dart up the middle into center field. A base hit for Kane. One run is in, it's Arcia. 2-1 Milwaukee, still nobody out in the eighth inning. Lorenzo Kane gives the Brewers the lead. Swing and a line drive, center field, base hit. The Brewers are on the board again. Santana scores. Kane reaches third. Runners at the corners. Eighth inning for Milwaukee with still only one out. The lead would be more than enough for Josh Hader, who went two scoreless innings and picked up his 12th save of the year. Milwaukee wins their eighth straight game to improve to 96-67. and 67. They have the top record in the National League and will have home field advantage through the NL playoffs. Chicago, meanwhile, falls to 95-68. and 68. They finish as the NL Central runner-ups, and they will host Colorado in the wild card game coming up this evening. Don't forget that game can be heard right here on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. 7.30 Eastern pregame show, 8.05 first pitch. Dan Schulman, Chris Singleton have the call of the action. The Rockies and the Cubs play an elimination game tonight at Wrigley. Meanwhile, after the game, Chicago Cubs manager Joe Madden gives credit to the Brewers on their National League Central title. All year, though, you know, you, I knew, I know we know how good Milwaukee is, and they were relentless. And, you, and again, give them credit, man. Don't, don't bang on our guys. Give Milwaukee some credit. They've they had a nice group. Um, they match up well. Their pitching is tough uh, on us, especially the bullpen stuff on everybody. So tonight, the Cubs put the ball in the hands of John Lester, a veteran who has been made for games like this. He has been in these spots before, and he has proven himself to be a reliable option. The Cubs play tonight in the wild card game. Hear Joe's thoughts on that. It's another game where we're, you know we're not dead in the water. We have a, another opportunity, and I've been involved with wild card teams that have gone all the way happens um so uh, we just you gotta throw this away very quickly you cannot let it negatively impact your thought process ever we're about to find out how short of memories the chicago cubs actually have for their opponent we go out west to yesterday's national league west divisional championship game a tiebreaker between the colorado rockies and the los angeles dodgers his 0-2 swing and a miss strike three and for his sixth consecutive season, the Los Angeles Dodgers are the National League Western Division champions. Kenley Jansen with a pump of the fist after the closing strikeout. And the Dodgers with a subdued celebration at the mound here at Dodger Stadium. They win the NL West crowd and they get set for the Atlanta Braves in the National League Division Series. They are your 2018 NL West champions. A great moment for Los Angeles. They continue to dominate the NL West. In case you missed it, let's tell you how it happened, beginning with some firepower early on from Cody Bellinger. The 1-0. 
Swing and a fly ball. Crank to right field. Gonzalez at the track. Turns around. Watches it go. Cody Bellinger with a two-run shot. And the Dodgers strike first in the NLS championship game. It's 2-0 in the bottom of the fourth. Yeah, not to be outdone, Max Muncie follows with a two-run shot of his own, giving the Dodgers a 4-0 lead in the middle stages of that ballgame. The 3-2 pitch. Swing and a fly ball. Well hit left field. Back on it is Dahl at the wall. It's gone! Max Muncie delivers an opposite field two-run shot, and it is 4-0 Dodgers in the fifth. 24-year-old right-handed pitcher Walker Bueller has been the epitome of consistency this year for the Dodgers, and he comes up big yesterday, tossing six and two-thirds scoreless innings, allowed one hit in that time, even helped out his own cause and drove in a run in the sixth. Bueller flares one into short right field. It's down for a base hit. Hernandez around third. Gonzalez coming up throwing. It's late at home. An RBI from the 24-year-old Walker Bueller is the first of his career. And it comes in this tiebreak game to put the Dodgers up 5 to nothing. Bueller held Colorado in check. They could get nothing done and exited the ball game with a 5-0 lead and a standing ovation from the Dodger faithful. And here comes Dave Roberts. He's making the, the walk to the mound. He's looking at the bullpen. Here comes Pedro Baez into the game. And there's a lot of booing at Dodger Stadium, but it's going to quickly turn to a standing O for Walker Bueller. Six and two-thirds innings of one-hit shutout baseball in a game that Dodger fans will remember for decades. Colorado would get on the board with a pair of solo home runs in the ninth. Nolan Arenado and Trevor Story go deep, but it was not enough as the Dodgers win 5-2 and advance to the National League Divisional Series where they will take on the Atlanta Braves. Colorado, meanwhile, has to travel to Wrigley today, take on the Cubs tonight, an elimination game. The winner goes to a five-game series against Milwaukee. However, Colorado manager Bud Black is excited and optimistic for the opportunity to go up against the Cubs with everything on the line at one of baseball's most historic venues tonight. You know, anytime you get to the postseason, it's an achievement uh, for me. Uh, so, you know, I'm proud of our group. Our guys have had a great year. You know, to take the division race down to a, an extra game is, uh, you know, is good stuff. I think the Dodger would probably say the same thing, that they'd look at it the same way as an accomplishment to be in that position that both teams were today. But is there any positive <clears throat> to going out and playing tomorrow that you can quickly put this in the rear view? Our guys will put it in the rear view for sure. The resiliency of this group has been awesome all year. As you guys have seen, the people in here from Denver have seen this group bounce back, and I expect that tomorrow. What are your thoughts on uh, facing the Cubs? Excited about it. Uh, it's going to be a great environment tomorrow at Wrigley. You know, their manager and I go way back. Uh, you know, this team enjoys, I think, playing uh, on the big stage. So we'll, we'll see tomorrow. That's why you play. We'll find out. But uh, our guys are excited. Colorado is now 91-72 and 72 on the year. National League Central runner-ups. During the final week and a half of the season, there was no team in baseball hotter than them. They had won eight straight games before going one and two over their last three. Colorado trying to re-spark the magic tonight. Kyle Freeland, 17-7 and record, 285 ERA, squares off with 34-year-old left-hander John Lester, 18-6, and 332 ERA. Once again, that game can be heard on ESPN Radio. Dan Schulman and Chris Singleton have the call. By the way, these two teams have not met since May 2nd of this year. An 11-2 win for the Rocks. 
They take on the Cubs tonight. Winner moves on to take on Milwaukee in the NLDS. Loser sees their season come to a close. Coming up, would things get any better for Denver area sports fans last night? We break down Monday night football on the other side of this break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to ESPN-UP and the ESPN-UP mobile app. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. ESPN-UP, Ishpeming Marquette. Once again, I'm Tanner Hoops. Glad you're with us today. Don't forget the Big Skin Bay Day is back. Pick the winner of each week's game to win. Play all season long for the $100,000 grand prize only at Ojibwe Casino in Barriga and Marquette. Well, we've got plenty to talk about as far as Monday Night Football. What happened last night, the craziness, the ridiculousness that transpired. But first, we've got a special message from the MHSAA, Michigan High School Athletic Association, bringing you their message of the week. Truly in a league of our own, always first in goal in overtime, and you've got to be kidding me. It's all next on This Week in High School Sports, powered by Michigan Student Aid, Michigan's go-to resource for student financial aid. Hi again, everyone. I'm John Johnson, and welcome to This Week in High School Sports. Last week, they gathered in Grand Rapids to celebrate the life of Dolly Konwinski and what a life it was. The longtime MHSAA registered official in baseball and softball died at the age of 87, and the word celebrate is an understatement considering her achievements. Before becoming a well-respected baseball umpire, Konwinski was a professional bowler and one of a special group of women who made up the old All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, the organization on which the movie A League of Their Own was based. An infielder, Konwinski had her own baseball card, playing primarily for the Grand Rapids Chicks, and the league was enshrined as part of the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown nearly 30 years ago. She told us in a 1990 interview for Passports about one of the pitchers in the league. She threw an overhand curve, and today it's known as the split finger. I mean, it would, the bottom would drop out of it head for their shoulders and the catcher would be pulling it out of the dirt. And as an umpire, she told us in that same interview the role that officials play in young people's lives. You're doing it for the, for the youngsters who at this time in their life may not be going on to the sport they're in, but they're there to have some fun. You can read more and watch our television feature from 1990 on Dolly Konwinski on the second half page of the MHSAA website. Our MHSAA TV game balls this week go out to Schoolcraft football running back Kobe Clark, who set an MHSAA record with nine rushing touchdowns against Constantine last week. And Rockford's Erica Vanderlende, who ran the fastest girls cross-country time in the state this season with a 1655.9 at the Allendale Invitational on Saturday. Back with more in a moment, you're listening to This Week in High School Sports. Do you need money for college? Michigan Student Aid is Michigan's go-to resource for student financial aid. They administer scholarships, grants, college savings programs, and other resources that help make college accessible, affordable, and achievable for you. See how they can help you today by visiting michigan.gov slash mystudentaid and connect with Michigan Student Aid on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram. Our weekly Be the Referee segment takes a look at the fine art of officiating with Brett Rice. In Michigan, football overtime for each team starts with first and goal at the 10-yard line. Other states which allow overtime begin anywhere from the 10 to the 25-yard line, 
and in some of those states, you could actually pick up a first down while on offense. But Michigan is always first and goal, even in those situations where a dead ball foul from the first team's possession in an overtime may start the second team series at the 25, it is still first and goal. The only way a team on offense can pick up a first down in overtime is on a penalty providing yardage plus an automatic, and those are only on the roughing calls, roughing the passer, the kicker, the holder, and a long snapper. Thanks, Brent. You can be a referee. Go online now to MHSAA.com to register. Our first edition of You've Got to Be Kidding Me for the new school year takes us to an all-time low. In the Midwest last week, the mother of an 11th grade high school student filed in federal court. That's right, she made a federal case out of this. A lawsuit because Johnny was cut from the varsity team he was going out for. Never mind that there's plenty of good federal case law that already states that participation in high school sports is a privilege and not a right. I know some ambulance chasers who found that out the hard way earlier this year. Think of the incredible precedent that could stand to be set here if the law and common sense did not prevail. Think of it. A judge overturning a coach's decision. That would open the door in sports to decisions about playing time. Positions played. What about block charge, ball strike, and pass interference calls going to court? How about who gets the lead in the school musical? Who is first chair and violin? Do you see how ridiculous this could get? Thank goodness the judge in the case refused to issue a restraining order Monday night for what was later reported to be sub-varsity team eligibility, which would have actually been a worst-case scenario since the widespread practices in school sports is to not place upper-class students on such teams for a lot of good educational reasons. There's already a glut of unworthy cases in our judicial system as it is, and cases involving school sports don't need to be in that mix. You've been listening to This Week in High School Sports, powered by Michigan Student Aid, a production of the MHSA Network. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm John Johnson. We'll see you next time. You can hear the weekly message from the MHSAA every Tuesday right here during the Sports Pen. Proud to be a supporter of the MHSAA and everything that they do. All right, switching gears and looking at football last night, who got a chance to watch that game? AFC West battle, Kansas City tops Denver 27-23 at Mile High Stadium in Denver. What a great game and what a great showing by Patrick Mahomes. Showtime Mahomes, a 23-year-old superstar, second-year player out of Texas Tech. It's not too early to call him a superstar. I know that's what you're thinking, but look what he's done through the first four games. In my mind... He is the best quarterback this season. As far as 2018, he's not the best quarterback overall, but this season, no one has played as well as he has. Granted, the officials did admit that they made a mistake last night, that there was a delay of game penalty that was missed, and that allowed the Chiefs to convert on a long yardage situation. They would later go down to score the game-winning touchdown that drive. But you can't take away from what Mahomes was able to do, particularly with his offhand. Tell me you've never seen anything like that before. He's under pressure. He'd have to throw across his body with his right hand, so he shot puts the ball with his left hand. Patrick, tell me, what were you thinking when you were watching them march down the field at the end? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was nerve-wracking. I mean, that, that's a good team, and they have a lot of talent. And for us to fight and kind of get that win at the end, appreciate it, man. Uh, I mean, it truly speaks to this team and how much heart and determination we have. Now, everyone wanted to see how you would handle adversity. Down 10 in the fourth quarter, what were you saying to yourself? Yeah, I mean, we just got to do what we do. I mean, I've, I've said it all year. I mean, this offense, I mean, we, 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 can, we can be a really good offense in this league. And, I mean, if we just 
kind of stay within ourselves and play the way we can play, we can win a lot of games. So much to talk about on that game-winning drive. First, the left-handed pass. How, how were you able to do that? Uh, I mean, I'll try not to do that anymore. Uh, the guy was chasing me around on my back. And I knew if I got it to 10, he could get the first down. And so I just figured out a way to get it to him. He made a great play on it. And first and 30, you got a big chunk of that, uh, a big pass to DeMar DeMarcus uh, Robinson. Take me through that play. <laughs> it, was a, uh, it, it was a play where D-Rod just kept working. And, I mean, we've worked that scramble drill all camp, and it, it paid off today. 192 passing yards for you outside of the pocket. You were joking with us yesterday saying you're not that fast, so when you take off, you're looking to pass the ball. Just what is your mindset when you do take off? Yeah, I mean, just get in the playmaker's hands. My offensive line uh, blocked our tail off. I mean, they were, their defense, I mean, they have great coverage guys. They were covering stuff downfield, and I tried to extend the play. My guys kept working, and they were making plays out there. You told me yesterday you're having so much fun. How would you describe this one tonight? Uh, it was awesome. I mean, just to get a win against a division opponent, a uh, rival, and, some, and someone that we're going to have to see again later in this season. I mean, it's a lot of uh, momentum going into next week. So Patrick Mahomes continues to amaze and put up numbers we've never seen out of someone of his age and of his lack of experience. This was just the fifth game he's ever started. He went into the most ruckus crowd that he's ever been a part of. By the way, give the Denver faithful credit for about half of the uh, Broncos points scored last night. About 12.5 fantasy points can go to the Broncos crowd, whoever started them this week. And it got to Mahomes early on in the game. He was struggling. He wasn't making the throws we are used to seeing him make. And in the end, the 23-year-old buckled down in his fifth career start. He went into a hostile environment, about as hostile as you'll play in, in the NFL, given that rivalry. He led his team from being down 10 points in the fourth quarter to a four-point victory. Granted, the defense had to hang on late. The defense is why the Chiefs are not going to win the Super Bowl this year, okay? We can go on the record and say that right now. As the defense is right now, it's terrible. And that's why the Chiefs are once again not going to make a deep postseason run. But despite that, Patrick Mahomes has been good enough to bail them out. And they're 4-0. So no, the Chiefs are not going to be Super Bowl contenders this year. Don't get too high on them. But Patrick Mahomes, that offense is the real deal. That offense is going to be among the best in football. The defense is bringing them down, and they have to upgrade it. There was the talk about getting the Earl Thomas uh, trade to happen. We'll talk about that later in the show. But there needs to be... A change on defense, whether that means Sutton is gone, uh, whether that means personnel swaps, maybe just getting Eric Berry back will help tremendously. But I will say this, give me a reason why Patrick Mahomes should not be considered for the MVP. I know we're only a fourth of the way through the season, still a lot of football to go. But if Patrick Mahomes can keep this up, why is he not the NFL's MVP this year? Why isn't he? He looks perfect in this system. Andy Reid has put together the right pieces around him. He's got all kinds of toys to play with on this offense. He has got speed like you wouldn't believe. He's got a quarterback that can sling the ball. He can make plays. He breaks the rules a little bit, throwing across his body, throwing with his offhand, and he makes it work. He gets away with it. Sometimes that's how you win ball games, and that's more important than playing by the rules. I tell you this, though. People forget that Case Keenum knows how to run a two-minute drill. And they know that as long as there's time on the clock after last year's Minneapolis Miracle, that Case Keenum is a dangerous quarterback. And he had the opportunity to do it last night, missing a wide-open man for what would have been six. Could have been the game winner. And Keenum's going to want to have that one back. He has worked hard. He's right to say that he's earned his place as being a franchise quarterback, not just a journeyman quarterback. And he has found a place in San Francisco. But those are plays he has to make. 
And granted, last night, the fourth down play, the last offensive play that Denver ran, he did make the play. And Sutton tried the hook and ladder. It was botched. He could have gone down, had enough of the first down. They would have lived to see another play. Let's take a listen. Here's your ball game. Fourth down. Desperate times. Oh, he tried to lateral it. He was trying to lateral it to Sanders. And instead, it goes down to the ground. Wow. They were going with the old hook and ladder on fourth down when it looked like the catch would have been right at the sticks. Joe Tessitore for Monday Night Football. I think we can all agree that Denver took a big step back last year and they're not quite recovered from it. Denver is not to the point where they're going to be contending for a Super Bowl or even for the playoffs. They might sneak in, but they're not going to make a run here in the next few years. Not while Vance Joseph is still the coach there. Nothing against Vance Joseph. He's a guy you want to root for, but I'm not impressed with what I've seen out of him. And I don't think him at Denver is a good fit, and I don't think Denver is going to be a dangerous team again until Vance Joseph is out. I tell you this, when Denver and Kansas City meet up again this year at Arrowhead, it's not going to be that close of a ball game. Patrick Mahomes is going to run through that Denver defense. For one thing, he knows he can. For another, it's in Kansas City. That Denver crowd did so much to impact the game last night. Give them a ton of credit what they did. And Patrick Mahomes won't have to deal with them a second time around. It all adds up to this. Denver's first blown 10-point lead in the fourth quarter at home since November of 2004. And you know who pulled it off? Showtime did. Patrick Mahomes, a star is born in the NFL. And he plays quarterback for Kansas City. I'll be honest with you, I'm rooting for this Chiefs team. They're a lot of fun to watch. Their offense is phenomenal. But their defense is atrocious, and that's why they're not going to make a deep run the way it stands right now. I'm rooting for the team. I am. I like Mahomes. I like the guys around him. His teammates like him. Here's what wideout Tariq Hill had to say after the game. Pat, he never uh, sees it to amaze me. Like, he be throwing the ball, no look, all in practice and stuff like that. So he can pretty much do any throw that any other quarterback in this league can do. So, like I said, we all trust him to make plays, and he trusts us. The trust and the camaraderie in that locker room is what great teams are made of. Those are the type of teams that go on to do special things. Coming up after the break, we've got more on the NFL. We'll get into the Earl Thomas saga and what's the next step for him. All that more is coming up on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. I'm Tanner Hoops. Glad that you're with us. Don't forget the Pigskin Payday is back. Pick the winner of each week's game to win. Play all season long for the $100,000 grand prize only at Ojibwe Casino in Barriga and Marquette. So with everything going on in the NFL, you look back over the weekend what happened with Earl Thomas and the whole Le'Veon Bell situation that's been strung out over the last few weeks. So Le'Veon Bell, there's no way he's coming back before week 11 unless he gets a monster payday. If there was any chance of it before this weekend, it's gone now. Earl Thomas was feeling the same way. He is the sixth highest paid safety in the NFL. He wanted a bigger contract and make sure he's insured for the long term, ends up breaking his leg, and his season is done. Comeback is going to be tough for him as he gets older. He's not at a position that necessarily ages well. A defensive back, he relies on his speed and strength. It doesn't necessarily age well. 
You really feel for a guy like Earl Thomas. He made the decision that he should come play football despite his better judgment that he wanted the contract and the worst case scenario happened for him. Now he's not going to get that lucrative contract he was seeking, at least not now. He's not going to get the trade that he was hoping for. He laid down an ultimatum for Seattle was pay me or trade me, kind of like what Le'Veon Bell is doing over in Pittsburgh. But unlike Le'Veon, Thomas decided to play and the worst case scenario happened. Now, I like what Jason Witten said last night on Monday Night Football regarding the situation. Did you catch that? I get the business. I talked about it a little bit with Le'Veon Bell last week. I understand it, and guys want to get paid, and, and as they should. But I think that'll be something he regrets, that he made that decision. He, he's had so much success in that organization. He's been rewarded, played well, making $9 million. And I'm just a firm believer, you go out and play. And there's risk for all of us when you go out and play, but... He's still getting paid this year, and he played well. I think he helped himself. He came out, showed that as a, as a veteran player, he's still a playmaker. He's still that safety, and somebody's going to pay him. If, if, it is not, if Seattle decides not to, he's still going to get paid and make his money. So I think that's a decision he'll regret. He's had a great season this year. He's played well, and he's shown teams that when healthy, he deserves to beat one of the highest-paid defensive backs in this league, which he is. But I don't like what he's done as far as making the Seahawks appear that they have conned him in some way, shape, or form. I don't know what egregious crime that Seattle has put before him that they have subjected him to. Seattle, I think, has been professional about it. They've had him under contract. They don't have to pay him anymore, and they don't have to trade him. You know, Seattle doesn't have to do anything in this situation. If Earl Thomas doesn't want to play because he wants more money, that's his prerogative. But Seattle did not do anything to deserve getting the one-finger salute from Earl Thomas as he was carted off the field after his broken leg. And I get that this kid footballs his life, he's worked so hard to get here, and now he's seeing it possibly, literally, his dream shatter right before him. And I get, you know, emotions take over in the heat of a moment, thing like that. You know, I, I don't blame Earl Thomas. I still like Earl Thomas. I think there's a lot to like about him. Nonetheless, not a good look, no matter what emotions were involved in it. Here's what Scott Van Pelt had to say. He has made $56 million playing football for Seattle. The extension they gave him four years ago in the summer of August 2014 made him the highest paid safety in the game. It's not like they never paid him the biggest money. They did. Has he earned it? Yes, absolutely. But that, that's not a look I can get behind. I absolutely support every great player trying to get every dollar he can, no doubt. I know what I don't know, which is what went on behind the scenes here. I just don't see how that is the gesture you could choose as your last as a Seattle Seahawk. You know who deserves all the credit in the world for how they're handling this whole situation with Earl Thomas is Pete Carroll. Head coach Pete Carroll, the Seattle Seahawks, he's a guy, he knew what happened with the whole flip and everything. He's a guy that's looking out for his players first. First of all, he was happy to have Earl Thomas back. And we just turned things around and everything was going in, in a really positive direction and, and all of that. So I, I, it, it breaks my heart that, that we're talking about this right now. But then again, why wouldn't you be glad to have an all pro like Earl Thomas back? Well, Pete Carroll understands these guys. He understands what they're going through and how much this means to them every time they step on the field. What a lot of writers and a lot of fans don't get is when these guys ask for more money, they'll call them overpaid, spoiled, babies, what have you. But these are guys that are putting their uh, their long-term health on the line, you know, just to go out there and bring you joy. 
you don't understand what it takes on your physicality, the toll that it takes, the work that gets put into it, these guys have to sacrifice and sacrifice to make this lifestyle happen. And they're putting themselves at risk every single time they take the field. And Earl Thomas was trying to make that case, decided that he was going to come play because that's what he's out there to do is to play. And again, the worst thing that could happen to him did. That's why Le'Veon Bell is doing what he's doing. And there are people who are going to be hard on Le'Veon for it. But Pete Carroll says that he has a good relationship with Earl Thomas. He has no hard feelings with him for what happened. He understands that the middle finger given to the Seahawks sideline was an act of frustration. A guy who knew that his career had just been hit with a major curveball. I, yeah, I don't know. Somebody said something. I don't know anything about that. I don't know. It's a big stadium. You know, could be. I don't know where it was aimed at. Earl was uh, extraordinarily poised on the field for for what just occurred, to to be so clear and so uh, you know resolved to, to, to what he he knew what happened. And uh, uh, but he was so poised uh, and you know and given back to the players and all of us. And, and uh, so I don't know what happened after that. This is why I've grown to like Pete Carroll over the years, is because a situation like this, where he might be the last guy in the Seahawks organization who deserves to get flip the bird from his star player. I mean, he has looked out for this guy. He looks out for all these guys. And I know it's a sympathetic situation, but Pete Carroll is not being sympathetic toward him. That's just who he is. He understands what these players go through and why they do what they do. He's a coach that really cares about his players. And he's willing to go to bat for a guy who just flipped off the team. It's not that he's throwing his own team under the bus. It's because he knows why Thomas did it. He knows he doesn't mean it, and this is something they're going to reconcile from. That doesn't mean that Thomas is going to come back into a Seahawks jersey. That may never happen again. But soon tempers are going to cool and fences are going to be mended. Earl Thomas may never play another down in Seattle, but he's going to make an NFL team extremely happy, whoever gets him, when he's back and ready to play next season. All right, more football coaching news. Who had the worst coaching decision over the weekend? Frank Reich of the Indianapolis Colts or James Franklin of Penn State? And everyone listening who follows football knows exactly which plays I'm talking about over the weekend. Frank Reich and his decision not to play for a tie said he goes for it on fourth down, sets up Houston with great field position to try and get a win, which they do. Colts lose 37-34. Or James Franklin's play call, where Penn State falls to Ohio State, fourth and five call, and Play never really got going. Didn't even let McSorley have a chance at making a play. Vote in our Twitter poll. That's today's Twitter poll. Who had the worst fourth down play call? Indianapolis and Frank Reich? Or Penn State and James Franklin? Then we want to know who reacted the worst to it. Both coaches seemed to defend their decision. Fought back hard to the very end and got it. and Thought we had a good drive going there at the end. And, and then just came up short. You know, just address it now. I mean, what... We're not playing to tie. I mean, we're going for that 10 times out of 10. I mean, that's just the way it's got to roll. Agreed. That, that, yeah, agreed. That was, that was the risk that we were willing to take, and uh, I agree with you. I agree with you. It wasn't the best-case scenario, so that was the decision. Yeah, I think that's who we're going to be as a team. You know, we're, we're going to be aggressive. That's what that's what we want in our players. That's a mindset that we have in our players. That's the only way to win in this league, I think. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Whenever you lose, you always go back and you reevaluate every play. In the perfect scenario, we don't call timeout. We just go for it the first the first time. I mean, there's no doubt that's the that's the way it 
probably is best to play it out, but it, that's not how it played out. So that's on me. Yeah, they, they changed the look, so we called a timeout and had some discussions. Um, you know, we obviously didn't make the right call in that situation. That's on me. Nobody else. That's on me. We didn't make the right call in that situation. Um, obviously, it didn't work. Um, you know, we've called something similar like that in other situations, and they broke for big plays. But that, that's on us. That's on me. So the first voice you heard was Frank Reich, head coach of the Indianapolis Colts, following their 37-34 loss on Sunday. Second voice was James Franklin after his team fell to Ohio State 27-26. to I give both coaches credit. They stood by and owned their decision. But James Franklin verbally accosted a fan following the game on Saturday night. And I get it's a place where emotions run hot and heavy over there in Happy Valley. But unfortunately for Coach Franklin, someone happened to catch the thing on a camera. And it ended up being a viral video on Twitter. Uh, Franklin's a good guy. He's a good coach, too. And it's not who he is. I think he's done a good job, handled it well, and made sure the fans, the national media, what have you, know that. And on some level, you got to feel for Franklin because what a frustrating year it has been for him. He's gotten his program back to being a national power. They are a status among the top teams in the country, although they were taking overtime with Appalachian State, were one play away from losing that game, and they blow a late lead against Ohio State, both those games at home. So while we might think Penn State is back to being an elite program, James Franklin doesn't think so. The reality is we've gone from an average football team to a good football team to a great football team, and we've worked really hard to do those things, but we're not an elite football team yet. And as hard as we have worked to go from average to good, from good to great, the work that it's going to take to get to an elite program is going to be just as hard as the, as the ground and the, and the distance that we've already traveled. It's going to be just as hard to get there. Scratch and claw and fight. And right now we're, comfor we're comfortable being great. And I'm going to make sure that everybody in our program, including myself, is very uncomfortable because you only grow in life when you're uncomfortable. Give him credit. He's saying all the right things when he goes out there and talks to the media. He's saying what he needs to. It's not just a coach's answer. I mean, he's telling his team, we are not an elite program. We don't deserve to be in consideration with teams like Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Georgia, what have you. At least not yet. And we're going to continue to push ourselves and get ourselves outside our comfort zone. So he is a very charismatic guy. He had that one instance, which I hope does not define him Saturday night after the game with a fan. He's a charismatic guy, and he's a good football coach. He's got Penn State on the rise. The only question will be, do they have a little farther to climb? Because what is his best win at Penn State over the last couple of years? Had a chance to take down Ohio State. Ended up blowing that game. This is a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately business. And he needs a signature win about every season. Penn State is a school with an illustrious football program that's been marred in the last few years. James Franklin has brought it back to a point where Penn State fans can start to have pride in it again. That's a fan base that wants to win. It's a process, I'll give you that. Everything in athletics over in Pennsylvania, whether at the college or pro level, seems to be, seems to have some type of process. And right now, I think Penn State is going through those growing pains where 
they've risen quicker than people thought they would, but they still have the talent to be elite. And James Franklin doesn't believe they are right now. I don't believe their own fan base believes that right now. I don't think many people, the majority of us, believe that either. They're a good team, make no mistake. But when it comes to winning that big game and getting into the college football playoff talk, right now, Penn State is not at the point to do that. Right now, that doesn't mean that can't change. And again, they've only gone north with Franklin. For the Colts, meanwhile, they have Andrew Luck back. Frank Wright can be happy about that. And I think he handled it the right way as well. He said, I understand. The loss is on me. I cost my team a loss in the standings. But he took ownership of it and he said, The Colts hired me, Jim Mersey and company picked me for this position because of what I do. And what I do is I go for the win. I don't play the tie. He wasn't going to punt the ball away and try to flip field position. Yes, his decision handed Houston the ball game. But Frank Reich is making it clear this is the kind of coach that he's going to be. And if Jim Irsay or the Colts don't like it, fire him. Because he's not changing. We have more coming up. We'll switch gears and get back to a little bit of baseball before we top off this episode of the Sports Pen. Stay tuned to ESPN UP. I'm Tanner Hoops. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. I'm Tanner Hoops. Don't forget that pigskin payday is back. Pick the winner of each week's game to win. Play all season long for the $100,000 grand prize only at Ojibwe Casino in Barriga and Marquette. Well, to finish off this segment of the Sports Peg, let's take a look on this day in sports history. We start out in 1921. New York Yankee outfielder Babe Ruth hit his record 59th home run as part of a 7-6 win over Boston at the Polo Grounds. 1932, the Washington Redskins. Happy birthday to them. They play their first ever game, losing 14-0 to the Brooklyn Dodgers at Braves Field. Of course, Washington was in Boston at the time. And they were known as the Boston Braves before becoming the modern-day Skins. 1936, the Yankees score a baseball World Series record 18 runs as they take down the New York Giants in Game 2 of the 36 World Series at Polo Grounds by a score of 18-4. The Yanks would go on to win that series in six games. Skipping ahead to 1972, the Montreal Expos and Bill Stoneman throws a no-hitter as the Expos take down the Mets 7-0 at Park Jerry. That is the first ever MLB no-hitter. That's pitched in Canada. 1998, the Minnesota Twins, they set a new attendance record for American League clubs, 3,030,672. They become the first ever American League team to break 3 million in attendance for a single season. Toronto Blue Jays did something similar three years later, 1991. They clinched the East with a 6-5 win against the California Angels. They become the first sports franchise in history to draw over 4 million fans in one year. Not just baseball, but the first sports franchise to draw over 4 million fans in one season. On this day in 2005, the NFL plays its first regular season game outside of the United States. The Arizona Cardinals take down San Francisco 31-14 in Mexico City. And finally, two years ago in 2016, veteran broadcaster Vin Scully signs off for the final time as the Los Angeles Dodgers fall to San Francisco 7-1. That ended 
a career mark of 67 seasons. That is a record. By the way, for all my hockey listeners out there, on this day in 1992, Mighty Ducks, The Flying V was formed. Great movie. Awesome movies. I love the second one the best. Second one where they go international, it doesn't make sense. Like the movie in itself, I know out of all the countries that they could have picked for the USA to play in that tournament, they picked Trinidad and Tobago. They have, what, three hockey rinks in the entire country down there. Tell you something else that doesn't make sense about that movie is they picked the dominant force in that tournament to be Iceland. That was the big rival with the Mighty Ducks when they became Team USA in Mighty Ducks 2. Iceland didn't even have a national team in 1994. They, they didn't have national hockey until five years later. They lost to the superpower that is Israel, 11 to nothing, in their first ever international match in 1999. Nonetheless, still a great movie and still a great show we've got on tap for you as your workday winds down. Uh, breaking news out of Minnesota today, Paul Molitor has been fired after four seasons as manager of the Minnesota Twins. Paul Molitor won the American League Manager of the Year Award less than a year ago, and now he's out the door. His team finished the season on a six-game winning streak. He had to deal with some ridiculous circumstances, injuries, what have you. He is one of the best players to ever play the game, to ever wear a Twins uniform. At what point do the Twins start taking responsibility in their front office? In the last five years, the Twins have fired two managers who were placed in situations where they could not win. Them staying afloat was in itself a success, was in itself a victory. At what point does the Twins front office start taking responsibility for what's going on in Minnesota? Ron Gardenhire was not the problem. Paul Molitor was not the problem. Who could have known Miguel Sano was going to bat 202 and miss, what, 100 games this season? Some due to injury, some because he was stuck in single A. Who could have known Byron Buxton was going to fall off the wagon again, be inconsistent? Who could have known what was going to happen with Irvin Santana, Jorge Polanco, that Jason Castro, one of the best defensive catchers who hits right at the offensive watermark for that position, was going to play less than 47 games? Everything was stacked against Molitor this year. They finished the season strong, 6 under 500. Oh, I should add Logan Morrison in there. They thought that he was going to be this veteran presence that they could stick in the middle of the lineup as an everyday player. Did not even play the last two months of the season because he was hurt. Couldn't hit the ball when he was healthy. Looked like a shell of himself. He looked like, like Chris Davis, similar to the year that he had. Who could have known Jake Odorizzi and Lance Lynn wouldn't have panned out like, like they were hoping? I think people could have known that Zach Duke and Fernando Rodney were in adventure, to say the least. They're bargain bin pitchers whose best days are behind them. But the front office, that was on them. Those are the pieces that they supplied Paul Molitor with. And now the reigning American League Manager of the Year is out of a job. I'm wondering who the Twins are going to get to replace and what exactly the standard is over in Minnesota. Don't get me wrong. As a Twins fan... I'm glad to see the standard being raised, but right now it's getting to the point where you can compare it to Nebraska football. You're getting such unrealistic standards, the job is becoming undesirable to other candidates because they're seeing that you have a short leash to win and you don't have a lot of tools to work with. But you're the scapegoat if things don't go as planned. 
Twins had high expectations for this season. They were thinking 90 wins in a division title. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Very disappointing season. But that's not on Paul Molitor. That guy was managing the club extremely well. And the Twins have done a great disservice and a disrespect to number four. The Twins' job is turning into University of Nebraska football and what happened to Bo Pelini a few years back. So who do the Twins get to replace him? You promote somebody? Derek Shelton may toss his hat into the ring? Maybe the front office knew that all along, and that's why the decision was made. Personally, I'd love to see Tory Hunter be a, at least a candidate for it. He's a guy that did so much for the team when they made their run to a playoff push. Didn't make the playoffs, but they were... They were there until the final weekend in 2015, the one season he came back and played in Minnesota, his last season in Major League Baseball. And he was such an influence. He was almost like a player coach. He knows the game. He knows how to relate to players. The Twins know him and love him. The fans love him, and he loves the fans and the organization. Torrey Hunter, to me, would be a logical fit. But again, I don't know that he's even wanting it. Do they go ahead and name Joe Maurer the new manager? He's not coming back. We can face reality. He won't be the manager this year. I'm, I would be shocked, but someday I'd like to see him end up being a manager. So I ask you this. We're going double dip today on our Twitter polls. We want to hear from you. We didn't do a Twitter poll yesterday, so we're making up. We're catching up today. Which American League managerial job is most appealing to a potential candidate right now? Is it the Angels, the Blue Jays, or the Twins? Which job would you want the most? If you're stepping into a situation like that, do you want the Angels, the Blue Jays, or the Twins? Twins to me just doesn't seem appealing right now. Barrel is fairly empty. When they're healthy, they're okay. They can be competitive. They played in a weak division. That helped. The Blue Jays are a team that has struggled to stay healthy. When they're healthy, they're not too bad. The Angels are a team that's got talent. And I think... A good move was made as far as Mike Sosha stepping down. He's been there 19 years, and I don't think that the Angels had any intentions of letting him stay on longer than that. So they gave him the opportunity to step down and, and go out on his own terms. That's kind of like the situation the Giants had a few years ago with Tom Coughlin. There was no way he was coming back, and everybody knew it, but the team gave him the opportunity to retire and go out on his own terms as a head coach. That's what the Angels did here with Sosha. He's an old-school manager. Doesn't mean he's a bad manager. But sometimes you just need the change of scenery, especially when you've got the talent there to win. So let us know. Vote on Twitter at ESPNUP which American League managerial job is the most appealing to potential candidates right now, the Angels, the Blue Jays, or the Twins. Come to think of it, how is the Baltimore Orioles job not open up yet? Buck Showalter can't be uh, around for much longer. I'm surprised that he still is there. A terrible season that they had, and I don't think Buck Showalter is a bad coach. I mean, the cupboard was empty, let's be honest. But I think it's time for a change of scenery. Buck Showalter can still manage somewhere in the major leagues, but some places just aren't good fits anymore, and I don't think Baltimore is for him anymore. By the way, before we stray too far away from the Los Angeles Angels topic, we extend our best wishes to Shohei Otani. Had a Tommy John surgery yesterday in Los Angeles. All reports seem to indicate that 
It went well. We wish nothing but the best for him as he makes his recovery and his return to the field. Don't forget that ESPN Radio is your home for the Major League Baseball postseason all postseason long. Tonight, we've got the NL wildcard game. Dan Schulman along with Chris Singleton to call the action as the Rockies visit the Cubs. 7.30 Eastern pregame, 6.30 Central. First pitch is set for 8.05. Then tomorrow night, the American League wildcard game. Oakland is visiting New York. That is a 7.30 pregame with an 8.05 first pitch. John Giambi and Eduardo Perez have the call the action. The Major League Baseball bracket is set. Fill out your bracket, ladies and gentlemen. Only got a few more hours left to do it. Rockies and Cubs playing tonight. Loser gets eliminated. Winner gets the Brewers. They travel to Milwaukee for that uh, best-of-five series. Milwaukee will have home field advantage throughout the NL playoffs. Boston. On the other side, we'll have it throughout the American League, a Boston team that feels like this is their year. And you get the feeling there's a lot of those teams that if it is going to be their year, this has got to be it. Because you've got that two, three, four-year window of opportunity to win your World Series. And if you don't do it, you're not going to. Doesn't matter how talented your roster is. You're not going to do it without going through another rebuild. This is it for the Dodgers. This is it for the Indians. Red Sox as well. These teams are losing their window of opportunity. They're seeing it close. They need to strike while the iron is hot. Looking through the other divisional matchups, over in the National League, you've got Atlanta taking on Los Angeles. Dodgers have home field advantage through that five-game series. Once again, the Brewers get the winner of the Cubs and Rockies, which again, tonight around 8 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, So then in the American League, you've got Boston as the top seed, welcoming the winner of New York and Oakland. On the other side, you have Cleveland visiting Houston to get started in that ALDS best of five series. How much fun is that pitching series going to be? Cleveland against Houston, probably the two best rotations in the postseason. You want to go three deep when you get to October. Those teams could realistically go five deep. That's going to be fun. So much to look forward to at this time of the year. Can't wait for tonight. Baseball postseason officially gets started. Let's get you hyped for it. 163 games, and then things get wild. The National League wild card. Something that I want so bad, you know, I want to get there. I think it really, you know, sets you up for a run in the playoffs. The feeling of winning is something special. The Cubs and Rockies. Coverage begins Tuesday at 7.30 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on ESPN. Presented by AutoZone. As always, thanks so much for spending your afternoon with me. Hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope you enjoy the game tonight. A reminder, ESPN Radio is your source for the MLB postseason all October long, and the Sports Pen is your source for everything live and local in the Upper Peninsula. Once again, I'm Tanner Hoop saying thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place, 4 o'clock Eastern, 3 o'clock Central, here on ESPN-UP Ishpeming Marquette and on the ESPN-UP mobile app.